Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, would you join me as we continue to worship as we pray? Lord God, would you guide us this morning by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, and in your truth, find wisdom, and in your will, discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Maybe you grew up hearing some of these um, gospel substitutes, maybe on YouTube. Maybe people have come up to you and have said these um, unbiblical gospel substitutes perhaps with good intentions, or perhaps not. Maybe you had someone come up to you and say to you that God accepts you. God accepts you as you are, essentially conveying the message that you're okay with God. But as we will see today, as many of you guys know, that in fact, the biblical gospel, gospel of the scriptures actually confronts us. It confronts us with our sin. And it does offer acceptance, but not the kind that perhaps is insinuated in the question or the statements that some people come up to us with. I think more of us have probably experienced this statement, people coming up, telling you, God loves you. God loves you. Um, I've been guilty of this with perhaps in my uh, former younger days, and after saying that, I realized it's not enough. So, you know, I, um, after telling them God loves you, I would give them a four spiritual law track um, if they don't want to talk with me. And, um, and when we say God loves you, if we say that to someone, I think sometimes um, we're implying that, you know what, because God loves you, you're okay. God will forgive you, and you don't have anything to worry about it. Because what loving God wouldn't forgive, right? But then again, this is not a biblical understanding of the gospel message. Perhaps more recently, we've heard this third version in various form. God is your friend. Jesus wants to be your friend. He understands you. He cares for you. He has sympathy with what you are going through in your life. And when we offer such pseudo-gospel, we basically miss the core need that the biblical gospel addresses. What do we need What's at the core of our human predicament? Is it sympathy, that we need sympathy, empathy? 1 Corinthians 15, after going through the previous 14 chapters, going through various issues of this disturbed church, whether it's 
sex, sexuality, idol uh, worship, to community worship, gender issues, and in the past weeks going through uh, speaking in tongues in the community worship context, now we get to chapter 15 where we actually are talking about doctrine, not necessarily practical um, um, aberrant behavior that needs to be addressed directly, but correcting doctrine that has false doctrine that has infiltrated some of the Corinthians, and we wait till later, um, and I'm not going to go too much, but in verse 12, we realize why the book of, excuse me, the chapter 15 was written to kind of go through, because there's a group of people within the Corinthian church that's being divisive again, because this group is not recognizing the resurrection of the dead. Perhaps this is the group of those who are super hyper-spiritual, the pneumaticoi, those who believe that you know, they're rich in every spiritual gift, so they think. Um, and the idea, the notion of a resurrection of the body, a human body that has died to resurrect is deemed crass. Um, rising of the corpse is something that they have a hard time believing. Perhaps these are the ones who are more educated, those who are more philosophically sophisticated, probably the highest status members, those with infatuation with wisdom, knowledge, and probably also tongues, as we've gone through in the previous chapter. The idea of the future resurrection of dead body just seems so foolish. Um, for them, for many Greeks, escape from the physical world, escape from the physical body is actually the goal. Um, body was considered as contemptuous. And why would you lose that body that is not the goal um, and then at the end want to go back? Perhaps these are the same group of people who in their... Um, Commitment to transcend human sexuality, renounce sexual relationship within their marriage. And Paul had to instruct them, no, don't do that. You see, Paul insists that the fundamental logic of human gospel presentation proclamation has to do with this life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't resurrect, then we really don't have hope because we will still be in sin. He's not trying to necessarily convince people that um, Christ rose from the dead, but right now the issue is there are those who don't believe that dead people's bodies will be raised from the dead, and this is causing division within the church also, as before. And this has the biggest implication. And he waits. He waits for the most important issue to the very end of the letter. And chapter 15 in its entirety, more or less, is about the doctrine of resurrection. And the first 11 verses is really about the gospel. Um, and the first four verses that I'll be speaking today is it starts off uh, the heart of the biblical gospel. Now, You've heard the word gospel before. You probably even heard the Greek version of the word gospel, euangelion, and it might sound familiar, 
angelos, there's word angelos within that word, which you probably have heard meaning messenger because it refers to angels um, when it's translated in Greek. So angelos refers to a messenger, and when you have you angelos, it's a, it's a good messenger. And when you have euangelion, you have the good message. So back in the Greek time, um, there were battles all the time. And if you consider Greece, it's basically surrounded by ocean. And one of the main ways they would get attacked would be from the north. And northern part of Greece, you know, uh, foreigners would try to infiltrate and conquer and basically enslave them and take them. And every once in a while, when great armies come to attack, city-states of Greece would send their armies to fight against those um, attacks because they're vulnerable and they don't obviously want to get conquered or taken captive. Um, and often when you send those armies, people who are staying within the city-states will be worried because you know, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have social media, um, they didn't know how the battle was going. Unless a messenger literally runs back to tell how the battle went, they have no idea. And everyone back at home would be basically stressed out, tremendously anxious, wondering whether they won or not, because what's at stake? Their future is at stake. Their life is at stake. If they win, then they can live in peace, continue their life as on. But if they lose, then eventually the armies will come, will capture them. Many of them will be taken as slaves and they'll lose their freedom. That's what's at stake. So the messenger who runs, they're waiting for that good message, hopefully. Yes, we've been victorious. That's the message that they are hoping and waiting for, the good news, that those who went for them have been victorious, that they won, and you know what? They're not going to have to worry about being enslaved. The Battle of Marathon, I think it was around 490 BC, when the first attack by the Persian invasion was happening, um, a messenger ran back to Athens and declared the good news. We triumphed and supposedly died. Thus, we begin running the 26.2 mile run. And I think, um, you know, in about two hours, people are running as fast as they can. I think there's some debate about whether it was actually 26.2. It's probably close to 25 miles, but anyway, it's pretty close. It's a lot. I don't think human body can really you know, handle that kind of on a regular basis, but there are people who compete. And right now, as Olympic continues, there will be that competition. Um, now, Paul chooses to use this word, euangelion. It's a loaded word that Greeks in Corinth would understand. They understand what's behind it that there's a battle at stake, there is victory at stake, and the implication of that victory. That someone else has fought the battle, and if you're talking about euangelion, good news, that means victory is won, there is freedom from um, slavery. And so when Scripture uses the gospel, you will eventually, inevitably, as a Corinthian church, think about battles and good news and freedom and victory. Verse 1 of chapter 15 starts. It's a huge contrast from what's been preached through. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, it starts. And the verse 1 and 2 basically sets up how the gospel was accepted by the Corinthian church. There's a change of subject, now, and then there's, there's an expression of affection. He calls them brothers, and he's reminding them. What is he reminding? Of the gospel that he preached to them, which they received, in which now they stand. Now, the phrase, when we uh, look at it, the gospel I preach, this is an emphatic expression because well, the gospel is pretty clear, euangelion, but the word preach, actually, there are a lot of different verbs that are used to preach or proclaim, but this verb actually is a word, euangelizo. So it's not a broad general proclamation verb, but it's a verb that expresses preaching of good news. So the good news that I preached with good news. It's like, I preached this to you because I received it, and you received it. Back previous chapters ago, in chapter 11, Paul used the language of receiving. So when the Bible speaks of receiving, it means you didn't come up with it, but you received what was given. Here, the Corinthian church, they received what Paul gave. That's why the church exists, and Paul is delighting in this. Um, and at the end, it is something that is personally received, personally believed. It's something that they had to and they did accept. As the verse continues in verse 2, it says, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Again, same word, preach, euangelizo, unless you believed in vain. This, this phrase, by which you are being saved, it, it's referring to um, saving of the Corinthians as they continue to hold firmly what was given to them. It's talking really about authentic persevering that this conversion that we're talking about true biblical conversion that is real that is authentic truly perseveres genuine saving faith perseveres in colossians paul wrote um, in chapter one he he writes god has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present your you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Um, the Corinthians holding fast the gospel that Paul has delivered is an evidence of their genuine salvation. However, there were those, some, who lacked this true saving faith. That's why this doctrine is being addressed. There were a group of professing Christians who are wavering off. Now, you can have belief, you can hold on to Orthodox Christian faith and live, but at some point, if you fully reject it, then that means that salvation wasn't real. Such person does not truly hold fast to the word, and his faith is in vain. It's empty. Our Lord spoke a lot about sham believers. Our Lord Jesus would never ask those kind of questions with pseudo-gospel. In fact, he pointed out those kind of sham believers who had basically useless faith. Think about the power of the sower, where the seed falls on shallow or 
uh, weedy soil. Or the contrast that Jesus made, uh, the wheat, true wheat versus tares that may look alike, but at the end, uh, it's going to be harvested and then burnt. Think about Jesus when he spoke of different kind of fish that gets caught in the same net, but the bad are going to get thrown away. Think about houses that are being built that's going to sink because it's not with good foundation. Or virgins without oil for their lamp or servants who wasted their talents and were cast out. Or Jesus' warning of gates and paths that seemed right but leads to destruction. Jesus, one of the scariest teaching, speaks of those who will say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this in your name? Telling them, I don't know you. It is Jesus who taught us to abide in his word, to hold fast the word, continue in faith. And I believe in the last class this Wednesday, don't miss out in the what is Reformed Theology with Sam, you're going to go through and learn perseverance of saints or another way of expressing or learning that is the preservation of the saints that God does to those that God has called to himself. Apostle, Paul, Apostle John also um, teaches us in his letter that those who went out from us, referring to those who abandoned faith, were actually never really with us. So, Paul points out that the first Corinthian, the Corinthian church heard what was delivered through, and Apostle Paul was just a delivery man. He received it, and he delivered as any good mail carrier. He's not coming up with his own message, but what God gave, he delivered, and they received. Now we see the content in verses 3 and 4. So we know that they received, but here now we see what that message is. So in verse 3, it continues by saying, I delivered to you as of first importance what, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scripture. So like I said, he's delivering what he received. Just as when he was instituting the Lord's Supper, he was teaching, instituting um, what God, Jesus actually taught. And um, there are a lot of things in the Bible that's important. There are a lot of things. Everything in the, in the Bible is important. Everything in the letter Paul wrote was important. But he's highlighting something here in verse 3. There's something of first importance. The gospel is of utmost importance. And he waits for this utmost important thing to the very end. And this is what he wants them to know. And if we get this wrong, then we are in big trouble. The content of the gospel starts with Christ. The first word, Christ. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is not about kind of a bland, generic good news about God. It speaks of the Messiah, the Christ. And this Christ addresses our main human problem. There's nothing more basic than this. It's our sin. It's not our loneliness. It's, it's not 
this or that, the basic human predicament is our sin and sinfulness. And that's what he dies for, that Christ died for our sins. So the offense is not against each other or with ourselves. The offense that we're dealing with is against God himself. And anyone who says, you know, they're walking with Jesus, they're hearing him as his friend, Jesus is guiding them, but don't understand, don't center, don't ground their thinking and living in their spiritual life with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they don't get the gospel. God's forgiveness is what we need. That's what the gospel is essentially saying. And the gospel also points out that everything is according to Scripture. The gospel is biblical because the fulfillment of what Jesus did and is dying for our sin is fulfilling the Scripture. Think of the, the path that Jesus took on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. What does he say? He explains to these people um, all things that Scripture pointed to him about. Whether Jesus is, um, excuse me, whether Apostle Paul is thinking of, you know, Isaiah 53 or maybe even Psalm 2 and thinking about the different passages that Jesus and his entire life, death, and resurrection is pointing to doesn't say explicitly, but we know that entirety of Scripture essentially points to Jesus. And that's what we get. Jesus Christ died as a substitute. He took our place. He took the hell that we deserve. He took the suffering we deserve. He took the sorrow and the shame. Everything that we deserve, he took instead. He became, as, he became our substitute, as Isaiah 53 reminds us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Instead of us, he bore it. An Anglican pastor by the name of John Stott, who passed away a bit ago, um, um, speaks of the, this concept of substitution and how important it is to understand both sin and salvation. To understand gospel well, we need to understand substitution. Um, and he explains sin in this way. At the essence, sin, what is sin? It is substituting yourself for God, putting ourselves in charge of our own lives, saying, I am my own master, I am my own maker, I am my, I'm going to decide on my own, instead of heeding the true creator. I'm going to decide my way. At the heart of sin, that's how he defines So if sin is you and me substituting ourselves for God, what is salvation? Stott would say that it's God substituting himself for you and me, putting himself where we deserve to be. It's God going to the cross and taking our punishment in our stead, paying the debt of sin to restore us back to the Creator who made us, to worship Him 
and enjoy him forever. Apostle Paul continues with the content of the gospel. After saying Christ died for our sins according to scripture, scriptures, he continues by saying that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, the emphasis, everything fulfilling according to the scriptures. And there's an interesting point, I don't know if you noticed before, but there's a, there's a statement that says he was buried. So by saying so, it's proof that he actually died and that the raised body is a corpse. And who does the raising? This verb is a passive voice, and it's God who does the work of raising him up, God the Father, through God the Holy Spirit. And it's perfect tense so that it's referring to Jesus being risen. He remains risen. This perfect tense repeats six times in this chapter and only one more in, in the rest of the New Testament. And it points that Jesus is, not was, he is the risen Lord, and he always will be the risen Lord. We have recited saying that Jesus has risen and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He, that, that Jesus is a risen Christ, and he still remains risen for us. Before thinking about the gospel in a theological way, I think one of the most important things is to accept and embrace in a historical way. Christianity is not like other philosophical or world thoughts as an idea or an axiom, but it's grounded on historical events. If Christ really died and rose again, it changes everything about the way we think and live. But some people don't believe that. But if Christ did resurrect, then we cannot live the same way that we've been living as before. Because that means everything that he has said, everything has to be taken seriously. But if Jesus didn't rise again, and if someone finds his dead body and proves, then we are fools. Because everything hinges upon the actual life death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of these Corinthians had a hard time believing, not that Jesus rose again, but that they too will rise again if they die. Biblical gospel is anchored in those historical events. That's why we recite each week, whether in the Nicene Creed or an Apostles' Creed, we recite basically at the part of the essence of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And when we look through the Gospels, whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see these elements. That's why they're called the Gospels, the good news. Because a battle has been fought, a victory has been won, and now you are free. Free from what? 
free from the consequence of sin. The bondage against sin and death has been broken. Therefore, when we are given the opportunity to share the good news, the gospel, we are to make sure we include the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about the Nicene Creed we just recited together. For our sake, he was crucified on the Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. That's what we recited this whole month. And next month, we're going to continue reciting the Apostles' Creed, which will say, suffer under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. Why do we recite these historical realities? Because it matters. The gospel events that took place 2,000 years ago matters. Everything matters on these When people come to us and say, God loves you, excuse me, God accepts you, you're okay with God, um, nothing could be so wrong. Actually, we're not okay with God. We're worse than being okay. We are sinners, and we are at the judgment of God. Death and hell awaits for those who have not reconciled before God. But true, deep acceptance is available through the sacrificial death of Jesus, through his death, burial, resurrection. That's the true gospel. When someone says God loves you, well, perhaps with good intention, they're not preaching the gospel because the love of God is a costly one. The love of God is a holy one. And as Jesus taught Nicodemus that dark night when he met, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And he continues. You know what he said? Those who believe are not condemned, but those who don't are condemned already. The love of God is a sacrificial holy love that cost him his son on the cross. That is the gospel, not just God loves you, you're good. That's not the gospel. That's not good news. What battle did that address? What issue did that show about human predicament? And those of us who have heard, you know, God as our friend, thinking, perhaps with good intentions maybe, that we need sympathy, we need empathy. Well, we do have a high priest who knows everything we've gone through because he lived a life as a human being fully, been tempted in every way but didn't sin. But he died because the main human issue is not loneliness, it's not psychological, it's spiritual. It's a spiritual condition called sin. Because that's what he died for, to address sin. Brothers, 
Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, he lived, he died. He was buried and he rose again for sinners like you and me as our substitute. And God will save anyone who turns to him, holds on to him, trusts in him. Would you hold fast to this gospel that we received through the word that we have? And would we persevere, not give up, but continue to fight for as our elder Ho Young prayed for us? Would we fight for the gospel truth in days like today as it gets harder? And for those of us who don't, who have not held fast, trusted, would you begin? Would you talk to any one of us elders um, before leaving if you're not sure? And may we grow maturing to be ready to share this biblical gospel to this dying generation that is so confused that they may know what's at stake, who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he availed, and what he stated when he was raised from the grave. Let us pray.